Chapter Eleven, Part One of *The Guns of Shiloh*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Guns of Shiloh* by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Eleven, The Southern Attack, Part One. The excitement in the Union Army was intense and joyous. The cheers rolled like volleys among these farmer lads of the West. Dick, Warner, and Pennington stood up and shouted with the rest. "'I should judge that our chances of success have increased at least fifty, yes, sixty percent,' said Warner. "'As we have remarked before, this control of the water is a mighty thing. We fight the Johnny Rebs for the land, but we have the water already. Look at those gunboats, will you? Aren't they the sauciest little things you ever saw?' Once more the Navy was showing, as it has always shown throughout its career, its daring and brilliant qualities. Foote, the Commodore, although he had no time to repair his four small fighting boats after the encounter with Fort Henry, steamed straight up the river and engaged the concentric fire from the great guns of the southern batteries, which opened upon him with a tremendous crash. The boys watched the duel with amazement. They did not believe that small vessels could live under such fire, but live they did. Great columns of smoke floated over them and hid them at times from the watchers, but when the smoke lifted a little or was split apart by the shattering fire of the guns, the black holes of the gunboats always reappeared, and now they were not more than three or four hundred yards from Donelson. "'I take it that this is a covering fire,' said Sergeant Whitley, who stood by. Four little vessels could not expect to reduce such a powerful fortress as Donelson. It's not Fort Henry that they're fighting now.' "'The chances are at least ninety-five percent in favor of your supposition,' said Warner. The sergeant's theory, in fact, was absolutely correct. Further down the river the transports were unloading regiment after regiment of fresh troops and vast supplies of ammunition and provisions. Soon five thousand men were formed in line and marched to Grant's relief, while long lines of wagons brought up the stores, so badly needed. Now the stern and silent general was able to make the investment complete, but the fiery little fleet did not cease to push the attack. There was a time when it seemed that the gunboats would be able to pass the fortress and rake it from a point up the river. Many of the guns in the water batteries had been silenced, but the final achievement was too great for so small a force. The rudder of one of Foote's gunboats was shot away, and the wheel of another soon went the same way, and both drifted helplessly down the stream. The other two then retreated, and the fire of both fort and fleet ceased. But there was joy in the Union camp. The soldiers had an abundance of food now, and soon the long ring of fire showed that they were preparing it. Their forces had been increased a third, and there was a fresh outburst of courage and vigor. But Grant ordered no more attacks at present. After the men had eaten and rested a little, picks and spades were swung along a line miles in length. He was fortifying his own position, and it was evident to his men that he meant to stay there until he won or was destroyed. Dick was conscious once more of a sanguine thrill. Like the others, he felt the strong hand over him, and the certainty that they were led with judgment and decision made him believe that all things were possible. Yet the work of fortifying continued but a little while. The men were exhausted by cold and fatigue, and were compelled to lay down their tools. The fires were built anew, and they hovered about them for shelter and rest. The wan twilight showed the close of the wintry day, and with the increasing chill a part of Dick's sanguine feeling departed. The gallant little fleet, although it had brought fresh men and supplies and had protected their landing, had been driven back. The investment of the fort was complete only on one side of the river, and steamers coming up the Cumberland from Nashville might yet take off the garrison in safety. Then the work of the silent general, all their hardship and fighting would be at least, in part, a failure. The Vermont youth, who seemed to be always of the same temper, neither very high nor very low, noticed his change of expression. "'Don't let your hopes decrease, Dick,' he said. 
Remember that at least twenty percent of the decline is due to the darkness and inaction. In the morning, when the light comes once more, and we're up and doing again, you'll get back all the twenty percent you're losing now. It's not to be all inaction with you boys tonight, even, said Colonel Winchester, who overheard his closing words. I want you three to go with me on a tour of inspection, or rather scouting duty. It may please you to know that this is the special wish of General Grant. Aware that I had some knowledge of the country, he has detailed me for the duty, and I choose you as my assistants. I am sure that the skill and danger such a task requires will make you all the more eager for it. The three youths responded quickly and with zeal, and Sergeant Whitley, when he was chosen, too, nodded in silent gratitude. The night was dark, overcast with clouds, and in an hour Colonel Winchester with his four departed upon his perilous mission. He was to secure information in regard to the Southern Army, and to do that they were to go very near the Southern lines, if not actually inside them. Such an attempt would be hazardous in the extreme in the face of a vigilant watch, but on the other hand they would be aided by the fact that both North and South were of like blood and language. Even more, many of those in the opposing camps came from the same localities, and often were of kin. Dick's regiment had been stationed at the southern end of the line, near the little town of Dover, but they now advanced northward and westward, marching for a long time along their inner line. It was Colonel Winchester's intention to reach Hickman Creek, which formed their northern barrier, creep in the fringe of bushes on its banks, and then approach the fort. When they reached the desired point the night was well advanced, and yet dark with the somber clouds hanging over river and fort and field of battle. The wind blew out of the northwest, sharp and intensely cold. The snow crunched under their feet, but the four had wrapped themselves in heavy overcoats, and they were so engrossed in their mission that neither wind nor snow was anything to them. They passed along the bank of the creek, keeping well within the shadow of the bushes, leaving behind them the last outpost of the Union army, and then slowly drew near to the fort. They saw before them many lights burning in the darkness, and at last they discerned dim figures walking back and forth. Dick knew that these were the southern sentinels. The four went a little nearer, and then crouched down in the snow among some low bushes. Now they saw the southern sentinels more distinctly. Some, in fact, were silhouetted sharply as they passed before the southern fires. Northern sharpshooters could have crept up and picked off many of them, as the southern sharpshooters in turn might have served many of the northern watchers. But in this mighty war there was little of such useless and merciless enterprise. The men soon ceased to have personal animosity, and, in the nights between the great battles, when the armies yet lay face to face, the hostile pickets would often exchange gossip and tobacco. Even in a conflict waged so long and with such desperation, the essential kindliness of human nature would assert itself. The four, as they skirted the southern line, noticed no signs of further preparations by the Confederates. No men were throwing up earthworks or digging trenches. As well as they could surmise, the garrison, like the besieging army, was seeking shelter and rest, and from this fact the keen mind of Colonel Arthur Winchester divined that the defense was confused and headless. Colonel Winchester knew most of the leaders within Donelson. He knew that Pillow was not of a strong and decided nature, nor was Floyd, who would rank first, of great military capacity. Buckner had talent, and he had served gallantly in the Mexican War, but he could not prevail over the others. The fame of Forrest, the Tennessee Mountaineer, was already spreading, but a cavalryman could do little for the defense of a fort besieged by twenty thousand well-equipped men, led by a general of unexcelled resolution. All that Colonel Winchester surmised was true. Inside the fort, confusion and doubt reigned. The fleeing garrison from Fort Henry had brought exaggerated reports of Grant's army. Very few of the thousands of young troops had ever been in battle before. They, too, suffered, though in a less degree, from cold and fatigue, but many were wounded. Pillow and Floyd, who had just arrived with his troops, talked of one thing and then another. 
Floyd, who might have sent word to his valiant and able chief, Johnston, did not take the trouble, or forgot to inform him of his position. Buckner wanted to attack Grant the next morning with the full southern strength, and a comrade of his on old battlefields, Colonel George Kenton, seconded him ably. The black-bearded Forrest strode back and forth, striking the tops of his riding boots with a small riding whip, and saying ungrammatically, but tersely and emphatically, "'We mustn't stay here like hogs in a pen. We must get at em with all our men afore they can get to us.' The illiterate mountaineer and stock-driver had evolved exactly the same principle of war that Napoleon used. But Colonel Winchester and his comrades could only guess at what was going on in Donelson, and a guess always remains to be proved. So they must continue their perilous quest. Once they were hailed by a southern sentinel, but Colonel Winchester replied promptly that they belonged to Buckner's Kentuckians and had been sent out to examine the Union camp. He passed it off with such boldness and decision that they were gone before the picket had time to express a doubt. But as they came toward the center of the line and drew nearer to the fort itself, they met another picket, who was either more watchful or more acute. He hailed them at a range of forty or fifty yards, and when Colonel Winchester made the same reply, he ordered them to halt and give the countersign. When no answer came, he fired instantly at the tall figure of Colonel Winchester and uttered a loud cry of, Yankees! Luckily, the dim light was tricky and his bullet merely clipped the Colonel's hair. But there was nothing for the four to do now save to run with all their undignified might for their own camp. Come on, lads, shouted Colonel Winchester. Our scouting is over for the time. The region behind them contained patches of scrub oaks and bushes, and with their aid and that of the darkness, it was not difficult to escape. But Dick, while running just behind the others, stepped in a hole and fell. The snow and the dead leaves hid the sound of his fall, and the others did not notice it. As he looked up, he saw their dim forms disappearing among the bushes. He rose to his own feet, but uttered a little cry as a ligament in his ankle sent a warning throb of pain through his body. It was not a wrench, only a bruise, and as he stretched his ankle a few times, the soreness went away. But the last sound made by the retreating footsteps of his comrades had died, and their place had been taken by those of his pursuers, who were now drawing very near. Dick had no intention of being captured, and, turning off at a right angle, he dropped into a gully which he encountered among some bushes. The gully was about four feet deep and half full of snow. Dick threw himself full length on his side and sank down in the snow until he was nearly covered. There he lay, panting hard for a few moments, but quite sure that he was safe from discovery. Only a long and most minute search would be likely to reveal the dark line in the snow beneath the overhanging bushes. Dick's heart presently resumed its normal beat, and then he heard the sound of voices and footsteps. Someone said, "'They went this way, sir, but they were running pretty fast.' "'They'd good cause to run,' said a brusque voice. "'You'd have done it, too, if you'd expected to have the bullets of a whole army barking at your heels.' The footsteps came nearer, crunching on the snow, which lay deep there among the bushes. They could not be more than a dozen feet away, but Dick quivered only a little. Buried as he was, and with the hanging bushes over him, he was still confident that no one could see him. He raised himself the least bit, and looking through the bows, saw a tanned and dark face under the broad brim of a Confederate hat. Just then someone said, "'We might have trailed them, General, but the snow and the earth have already been trampled all up by the army.' "'They're not worth hunting long, anyway,' said the same brusque voice. A few Yankees prowling about in the night can't do us much harm. It's hard fighting that'll settle our quarrel. General Forrest came a little closer, and Dick, from his concealment in the snow, surmising his identity, saw him clearly, although himself unseen. He was fascinated by the stern, dark countenance. The face of the unlettered mountaineer was cut sharp and clear, and he had the look of one who knew and commanded. In war, he was a natural leader of men, and he had already assumed the position. "'Don't you agree with me, Colonel?' he said over his shoulder to someone. 
"'I think you're right as usual, General Forrest,' replied a voice with a cultivated intonation, and Dick started violently in his bed of snow, because he instantly recognized the voice as that of his uncle, Colonel George Kenton, Harry's father. A moment later Colonel Kenton himself stood where the moonlight fell upon his face. Dick saw that he was worn and thin, but his face had the strong, resolute look characteristic of those descended from Henry Ware, the great borderer. "'You know, General, that I endorse all your views,' continued Colonel Kenton. "'We are unfortunate here in having a division of councils, while the Yankees have a single and strong head. We have underrated this man, Grant. Look how he surprised us and took Henry. Look how he hangs on here. We've beaten him on land and we've driven back his fleet, but he hangs on. To my mind he has no notion of retreating.' He'll keep on pounding us as long as we are here. That's his way, and it ought to be the way of every general, growled Forrest. You cut down a tree by keeping on cutting out chips with an axe, and you smash up an army by hitting and hitting and keeping on hitting. We ought to charge right out of our works and jump on the Yankees with all our strength. The two walked on, followed by the soldiers who had come with them, and Dick heard no more. But he was too cautious to stir for a long while. He lay there until the cold began to make its way through his boots and heavy overcoat. Then he rose carefully, brushed off the snow, and began his retreat toward the Union lines. Four or five hundred yards further on, and he met Colonel Winchester and his own comrades come back to search for him. They welcomed him joyfully. "'We did not miss you until we were nearly to our own pickets,' said the Colonel. "'Then we concluded that you had fallen and had been taken by the enemy. But we intended to see if we could find you. We've been hovering about here for some time.' Dick told what he had seen and heard, and the Colonel considered it of much importance. I judge from what you heard that they will attack us, he said. Buckner and Forrest will be strongly for it, and they are likely to have their way. We must report at once to General Grant. The southern attack had been planned for the next morning, but it did not come then. Pillow, for reasons unknown, decided to delay another day, and his fiery subordinates could do nothing but chafe and wait. Dick spent most of the day carrying orders for his chief, and the continuous action steadied his nerves. As he passed from point to point, he saw that the Union army itself was far from ready. It was a difficult task to get twenty thousand raw farmer youths in proper position. They moved about often without cohesion and sometimes without understanding their orders. Great gaps remained in the line, and a daring and skillful foe might cut the besieging force asunder. But Grant had put his heavy guns in place, and throughout the day he maintained a slow but steady fire upon the fort. Great shells and solid shot curved and fell upon Donelson. Grant did not know what damage they were doing, but he shrewdly calculated that they would unsteady the nerves of the raw troops within. These farmer boys, as they heard the unceasing menace of the big guns, would double the numbers of their foe, and attribute to him an unrelaxing energy. End of chapter 11, part 1